Welcome back to the 2AM Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. This week, I'm a little sad to announce that we're wrapping up our World War II Paris books mini-series that we've been doing this month. I'm a little sad because I've had a lot of fun doing this, but also I'm very excited because I really, really love the book that we're going to be talking about today. I, I'm willing to admit it. This is my favorite book in this mini-series, and it's also my favorite historical fiction book that I've read so far this year. And since I've read, according to my story graph statistics, according to those, I have read 13 historical fiction books so far this year. So saying it's my favorite, actually, you know, it carries a little bit of weight. But that book is The Postmistress of Paris by Meg Waite Clayton. It's a recent release. It came out in 2021. So it's the most recent book out of the three World War II Paris books that we've discussed in this miniseries. So let's, let's recap. How did we get here? In this miniseries, we have talked about The Paris Architect. That was our first book, and it was very much focused on the Parisian political landscape during World War II, the politics of trying to navigate Nazi-occupied Paris, and in particular, how all of the conflict and turmoil going on was reflected in the lives, the mindsets, and the worldviews of ordinary Parisian citizens. And then last week, we talked about The Paris Orphan. That was our second book, which was not really about Paris at all, but more generally American allied soldiers in Western Europe, and that was, <laughs> if you remember last week's episode, if you listened to last week's episode, then you know, then you know that I have very complicated feelings about that book, but I do think it was a fun episode. Anyway, so this week we're wrapping up with The Postmistress of Paris, and we're going to talk about how this book fits into our mini-series, how it compares to our two previous books, and in particular, how it's similar to those other books and how it's different. So, let's discuss. In our two previous episodes, what we started with was the title of the book. So, let's do that again. Let's talk about the title, The Postmistress of Paris. The Paris Architect was definitely an accurate title, right? It was a book about an architect living in Paris. The Paris Orphan was not a very accurate title. It wasn't really about Paris, and it wasn't even really about the titular orphan. One out of ten on title accuracy, I felt very much clickbaited or, I mean, as clickbaited as you can feel when it comes to books. So, what about this week's title, The Postmistress of Paris? I'm going to say that the accuracy of this title falls in the middle of the other two books, appropriately enough. It's not as accurate as The Paris Architect, but it's not as inaccurate as The Paris Orphan. The Postmistress of Paris is not really about Paris, but it's more, it's more generally about Marseille and so-called unoccupied France. 
And the postmistress part of the title is accurate. Of course, it's a reference to our protagonist. Our protagonist is Nani. And yes, I am again taking my pronunciation from howtopronounce.com or whatever website I used. So don't, <laughs> don't crucify me over my pronunciations. Okay. So she's living in Paris at the beginning of the book before the war begins. So I'm assuming that's where the Paris part of the title comes from. But here's the thing, right? After the war begins, she's not in Paris, like at all. She ends up in Marseille and she's called the postmistress because she delivers messages to refugees who are trying to get out of France. And I don't think she ever goes back to Paris. So I honestly think the accurate title here would have been the postmistress of Marseille. However, as we established in our very first episode when we were talking about the Paris architect, the word Paris is incredibly effective in conjuring up this aura of beauty and elegance that juxtaposes very effectively with the World War II setting. And in particular, when you're talking about a character like Nani, who is wealthy and elegant, I can see where that temptation comes from to say, well, even if she isn't living in Paris throughout much of the book, Paris is more emblematic of her as a character. I guess I can see that and Marseille doesn't really have the same impact. So, I mean, I get it, right? I get why it's titled the way it's titled, but I just feel that when you put it together with the cover of the book, right? Because the cover of the book is very clearly this woman walking into Paris towards the Eiffel Tower. And the Eiffel Tower, again, is very prominently featured on this cover. Putting all of that together, it just feels a little misleading, right? Anyway, speaking of the premise, like with the Paris Orphan, like with so many historical fiction books, this book, The Postmistress of Paris, is, say it with me, everyone, based on a true story. There we go. It's based on the true story of Mary Jane Gold, who is similar to Nani in many ways. Mary Jane Gold, like Nani, was an American heiress who grew up in the Chicago area. And like Nani, she was living in France when World War II began. Also, like our protagonist, Mary Jane Gold ended up in Marseille after the Germans invaded and she helped to evacuate refugees with American journalist Varian Fry. Varian Fry is also a character in the book and Nani works with him, or really she works for him, helping refugees get out of France. Villa Herbel, the house where Nani and her friends live in the book, was apparently a real place and apparently, according to the author's note at the end of the book, an important enough place to have an entire book written about it just by itself. So overall, I think that's great. I think it's great that we get to learn about this amazing true story. Again, like with The Paris Orphan, this was a really great opportunity to learn about a real-life woman who I had no idea existed and who did so much important work during World War II. Unlike The Paris Orphan, however, where I had to qualify my praise because of the um, unfortunate way that the plot developed and also, you know, all of the other stuff that we discussed last week, 
that stuff detracted from my reading experience. And so I had to go into it when I was talking about the book last week. But unlike with The Paris Orphan, I don't really have much criticism for this week's book, The Postmistress of Paris. Sure, it's not a perfect book by any means. And I don't really think that perfect perfect books exist. And there are definitely probably some critiques, some very valid critiques that you can make about the way that it touches on certain topics. And I... (laughs) I realize, I realize that when I really, really like something, I have this tendency to overlook its flaws and just kind of gush about it, particularly, particularly when I've, you know, when the books that I've been reading right before that can't really measure up to it, or I've just been disappointed in what I was reading up to that point. I'm especially susceptible when I'm in that state of reading a book that it's just like a step above and being like, this is the best book ever. You know, I recognize that tendency within myself and I recognize that that is probably clouding my judgment. And if I read this book like a year from now, if I reread it and went over it with a fine tooth comb, then I would definitely have legitimate criticism, I'm sure. However, as of now, I don't really, I'm not in a place where I have much criticism because I'm just so blown away by my reading experience, by how much I just loved this book. And so today's episode is not going to be like a usual episode where either I'm just like critical of the books all the way through or I'm complimentary at first and then move into criticism. This is pretty much just going to be a love fest, you know, fair warning. Like I really, really loved this book and so I'm just not in the headspace to offer criticism about it. And to be honest, I think that it's a good thing for me sometimes to be a little less critical and just to be upfront about, hey, sometimes it's okay to just enjoy things in a straightforward manner without trying to go through and find flaws just for the sake of criticism. Does that make sense? Because especially when you have like a book review podcast as I have or just like a platform in general where you're reviewing or criticizing things, I feel like it's just so easy to feel like you have to come from this place where you see flaws with everything. And I really don't want to be like that. Does that make sense? I really do just want to, you know, enjoy things sometimes and share my enjoyment and excitement of reading with everyone because otherwise, like, what is the point, you know? I read because primarily because I enjoy doing so and I want to be able to share that excitement with people. And yes, it's always, always going to be easier to just criticize and sometimes It's even more fun, you know, to just criticize things. But at the end of the day, I do want to maintain a positive outlook on books and on my reading experiences. And just in general, I think that I do try to approach every book I read with some level of positivity and excitement because I'm not really the kind of person who goes into things to criticize them. Does that make sense? Usually what happens is that I read like a blurb for a book, like I pick up a book, like a physical book, or I scroll through Libby and I click on a book, you know, to read its description. And then what happens is I just get this feeling where I'm just so excited. You know what I mean? I'm so excited to start the book and get into the experience and just have a good time and just escape from the world for a little while 
or, you know, to enrich my understanding of the world around me. And that really just is my default mindset for everything that I read. And really, you know, that applies to media beyond reading as well. You know, it applies to like movies and TV shows and so on. And so I really, really, really do want to convey that kind of sense of excitement that I feel sometimes, you know, because when my reading experience manages to fulfill all of the expectations that the blurb has placed within me, that's just so fun and exciting and that's why I read. And so from time to time, I do want to do episodes like this where I'm just excited and I just want everyone I know and everyone, well, you know, who's listening to share my excitement about the books I love as well. And I recognize that in a way, this is kind of a vulnerable thing being like, I really, really love this book, you know, because then there are people who will be like, well, but like, what about this aspect of the book? Don't you think that this is problematic? And that criticism could very well be genuine and valid. And I may be like, oh, I didn't think of that. Oh, you're right. And it puts me in a vulnerable place because I'm kind of, you know, endorsing it on my platform. But, right? But if you don't do that, if you don't put yourself out there and make yourself vulnerable, then what's the point, right? Then what it, what is the point? Like, why am I doing this? And, you know, also... Also, it's important to recognize that when I am negative about books, like that's a vulnerable position too. If I'm attacking a book that everyone loves, well, I, I hope I don't attack books. That's never really my intention. Maybe I do get a little harsh sometimes, but it's never my intention to be overly negative. Perhaps I do that. Let me know if I do that and I'll definitely try even with books I don't like to, you know, try to come across like some some more positive aspects and highlight those as well, because I really don't want to be too vicious. <laughs> so anyway, as I was saying, like that's a vulnerable position as well, right? Just in general, like putting your opinions out there in the world is a vulnerable position to begin with. And so I think that in moving forward, I do want to try to keep things balanced. Like sometimes I'll gush about books and be really excited. And sometimes I won't be. <laughs> and I want to kind of have a platform where it's okay for me to be either way. Like I really, really don't want to get locked in to being like one way or another because then it's no fun for me. If I have to be positive all the time, that's not fun because then I feel really, really bad about being negative at all. And, you know, toxic positivity, like who likes that, right? Like it's so disingenuous. But then also being negative all the time, maybe it's fun, but that's that's not really the energy that I want to bring into the world, particularly when it comes to something that I love as much as I love books. And so I do want to try to maintain that balance going forward. And this is kind of turning into a meta episode, kind of a state of the pod-esque episode. And I do apologize about that. But I just wanted to get my thoughts out there and kind of have a discussion, particularly as I'm not doing a State of the Pod episode this month. So maybe you can kind of consider this a hybrid episode to an extent. But like, just let me know, you know, if I'm ever getting like too much one way or another, because that's really not the energy that I want to bring to this podcast or to the world, as long as I'm putting my voice out there. I want to sometimes be happy and excited and just, you know, bring a little joy into people's lives by saying, hey, this book is beautiful. This book is gorgeous. Like I'm saying today, this book made me feel things. And so, yeah, that was that was a tangent, an unscripted tangent, too. I don't do those that often, but hopefully you got something out of that. And I... I do feel a little iffy that I have to justify why I'm going to be positive about a book today. 
thought, I feel like that was kind of something that I have been thinking about for a while. And so I'm glad to have had a chance to put it out there. In general, I am an overthinker. I overthink things all the time. That's why I do this, right? I overthink books and movies and things and I have to have an outlet for that. (laughs) Or else I'm just, you know, in my own head and that's not particularly healthy. And so thank you for listening. We'll 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 be back to our regularly scheduled programming. And our regularly scheduled programming for this week is having a really great time talking about the postmistress of Paris. But as you may have picked up when I was talking about both the Paris architect and the Paris orphan, neither of those books were uniformly pleasant reading experiences when it came to the writing style. I had criticisms when we were talking about both books about the ways in which they were written and justified or not, that was just how I felt. Like I didn't always have a good time trying to get through those books. And so what I really, really loved about The Postmistress of Paris, the very first thing that I noticed when I picked this book up and started reading it was how beautiful it was. Reading this book was such a beautiful experience because there was such richness in texture in the character development, in the use of setting and description, and just in the language that the author uses. And I do want to take a moment to read a passage from the book. It's from towards the end of the book, but I just wanted to give you an idea of why I love the way that this book is written so much. Okay, so here we go. This is an excerpt from towards the end of the book. She looked out to the two seas that were the same thing, feeling the warmth of his single finger on hers as she focused on the stunning blue-green, the white caps, the single bird a black shadow against the light. And he looked with her. They watched the lone eagle arcing gracefully toward them, its wings stretching wide and magnificent. They watched together as beyond him, the wild waters lapped against the shores of two different countries, connecting somewhere beyond the horizon in a place they couldn't yet see. So the thing is, right, I read a lot of historical fiction and it really, really is one of my most read genres. I think according to the story graph, it is my most read genre so far this year. And the thing is, right, historical fiction as a genre, I'm always going into it, looking for the kind of book that the postmistress of Paris is. So many blurbs promise me the kind of thing that the postmistress of Paris offers. Stories that are empathetic, heartfelt, deeply emotional, beautifully written, right? Like that's always what I'm looking for. Those kinds of very emotional, heartfelt stories against a historical backdrop. And of course, it's always a bonus to get to learn about amazing true stories. But to me, that's not really a priority when I'm reading historical fiction. Mostly, I'm just there for beautiful books. I think that's the most succinct way of putting it. I want to read historical fiction because I love epic, sweeping, you know, dramatic, beautiful books. And the sad truth is that so many blurbs promise me this, but how many books actually deliver on that promise? It's a problem that's common across all genres. You know, for example, in one of my early episodes, (laughs) I say that like I've been doing this for 10 years and not what... Uh, three months? Four months? Anyway, in an episode that I did, you know, a while ago towards the beginning of the podcast, 
I asked a question, right? Like how many thrillers do you read that are actually like as advertised, gripping, on the edge of your seat, spine tingling or or whatever, you know, the um the little, you know, review blurbs are saying these days. I do read thrillers, like I have started reading them. But I almost never like read like what Stephen King has to say or, you know, I just feel it's so not fake, but disingenuous, I guess. Like we we all know why you're doing it, you know. (laughs) Anyway, sorry about that. But how many thrillers actually deliver on the promises that they make? Not many. And so similarly in historical fiction, I don't often get the kind of book I'm looking for. And so I think that's partially why I'm so delighted to have found this book and to have read it and experienced it. It just feels like such a beautiful experience. So yeah, it is It is my favorite historical fiction book that I have read in 2023 so far. And I think what I loved in particular about this book is that it's not just the characters, although the characters are beautifully developed. It's not just the way that the author is able to bring settings to life, although she does do that as well. It's not just all of the excitement and the action and the historical setting, although that's beautiful as well beautifully done, exciting, you know, all of that good stuff. But what I really, 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 really loved is how much it's willing to engage with big ideas. You know, like so many historical fiction books that I've read so far this year have just been about the time period or like what's going on in the story, the action of the story. And it hasn't really been about big ideas or themes or all the things that I just love to talk about, you know me. And so this book engages with ideas about art and ethics and the meaning of art and in particular, the ethics of creating and distributing art about the war. And so that's part of why I love this book so much because everything that's going on in the story has meaning. You know what I mean? Like all of the characters and everything that happens is working towards these bigger ideas. And I think I really love that because you know what I mean? You don't really get that except in fiction. Most of the time, our lives are just, you know, we're just living them. They don't really have purpose or meaning. And so these big ideas and themes at play, it only really works in fiction. And so it makes me really happy when fiction chooses to engage with those big ideas and themes and bring those things into the story because then I, you know, I feel like as a reader, I'm actually being enriched by what I'm reading. And isn't that really why we engage with fiction in the first place, right? To enrich our ideas and thoughts about the world around us. Anyway, so <laughs> so um, forgive me if I'm, I'm being a little, little too complimentary, but I really just am very, very excited to talk about this book. So Nani is not an artist, but her love interest, Edward, so his name is spelled the French way, so I think that it's not pronounced Edward, but I'm going to call him Edward. Just be glad I'm not calling him Ed, okay? (laughs) Anyway, her love interest, Edward, is an artist. He's a photographer. He's a refugee who is fleeing from Nazi Germany and he has with him his little daughter, Luki. By the way, I just want to take a moment here to congratulate the author for creating such a real, lovable, human love interest. Edward is by 
far, no question about it, the best love interest out of the three love interests in this miniseries because he's an actual person, not just a wish fulfillment fantasy of what an ideal love interest should be like. And that makes the romance so real and devastating and beautiful and an actual positive addition to the story that helped to deepen it and enrich it. So many times, romances in historical fiction just feel tacked on and unnecessary. And what I particularly, particularly dislike is when we're supposed to be invested in the romance because of the external forces that affect the characters or drive them apart, when the author hasn't done any of the work to actually make us care about the romance in the first place. But this romance is different. This romance is so beautiful because Edward's character and Edward's story adds so much to the book. He's not just a love interest. He's a person with his own fully developed worldview and ideals and experiences and past. And I think that the best way to point out how effective and beautiful the interpersonal relationships in this book, The Postmistress of Paris, are, is to compare them to the interpersonal relationships in last week's book, The Paris Orphan. Because, oh, by the way, I have not done my spoiler alert, have I? I just realized that I am like, I'm gonna guess 20 minutes <laughs> into this episode and I have not done a spoiler warning. I am so sorry. I just got so carried away by, you know, everything that's going on that I did not... <laughs> Oh gosh. All right. I'm so sorry. I am so sorry, you guys. Okay. Spoiler warning. Spoiler spoiler alert for The Postmistress of Paris. I don't think I spoil anything, really. I'm mostly just talking about my love for this book, but through context clues, you can probably pick up some spoilers in this discussion. So minor spoilers, I would say, ahead for this book. I really do encourage you to read it. So if you want to, it's a little too late to say, like, read it before continuing. Oh, gosh. All right. However, <laughs> spoiler alert, regardless, I'm so sorry about that. Okay, so going back to what I was saying, both stories, The Postmistress of Paris and The Paris Orphan, involve a woman who falls in love with a man who has a child. Both stories involve a woman who deals with a lot of misogyny around her falling in love with a man who treats her as, you know, a human being. But The Postmistress of Paris is so much more effective at selling us this love story. And I think it's instructive both, you know, whether you're a writer or a reader to examine why. Why does one love story work and the other love story doesn't really work, right? Why is that? Let's start with the children. In The Paris Orphan, we have Victorine, and in The Postmistress of Paris, we have Luki. With Victorine, we are told over and over and over again how important of a character she is. She's in the title, she's emphasized in the blurb, she's the connection between the past storyline and the present day storyline. However, as a reader, Despite being told how important she is over and over and over again, you never really buy it because Victorine doesn't really feel like a real person or a real child. At best, she feels like an accessory or a plot device. As you may have noticed if you read a lot, 
particularly if you read a lot of romances, a lot of authors are really, really bad at writing convincing children, particularly convincing young children. Victorine is around four years old, I believe, throughout the past storyline, and she's very, very much your stereotypical sweet little girl who is unbelievably angelic and good and just doesn't have much of a personality outside of being lovable. And specifically, within the context of this setting, World War II, She's basically serving as an emotional support person for Dan and Jess and also Dan's soldiers. It's a lot to put on such a young child, but for these types of characters, it's so common for them to have this almost superhuman ability to withstand pain and trauma, not only their own pain and trauma, but the pain and trauma and suffering of those around them, because that's how they earn their place in the story. It's not enough for them to simply exist as children. They have to be the best, most adorable, most important children to ever exist. They can't whine, they can't complain, they have to endure their situations in ways that even literal adult soldiers are not expected to because that's the price they pay for being allowed to exist in this setting as a child. Victorine is a perfect example of this archetype and a sad example of just how much she's used as a tool to further the story rather than being developed as a character in her own right. She's used to bring Dan and Jess together initially, and she's used through her daughter to bring them back together at the end of the story. That's pretty much her entire purpose just being used so that the story can get from point A to point B. She has very little agency and honestly, very little personality. She gets maybe one chapter from her perspective and the fallout from all of the trauma that she had to experience is never explored. And yes, we feel bad for her, but only as like a generic child caught up in the war character and not as a person that we feel like we know and love. Luki, on the other hand, she is also around the same age, but she feels like a very real child. She's vulnerable, she's a smart child, but she's often confused. Of course, she's a child in that situation. Of course, she's confused. And the way that she thinks and talks is very much reflective of her trying to understand what's going on in the situation, trying to parse what these adults are telling her. She tries so hard to be brave, but she often doesn't even understand what she's being brave for or even what's going on. My favorite part of her character is how much she clings to her stuffed kangaroo and the other physical possessions that she's allowed to carry around, like a photograph and her mother's like papers. And it's just so real. It's very much how a child would behave in that situation. Her point of view chapters are so sad and sweet. And even though keeping her safe does drive a large portion of the plot, she doesn't feel like a plot device so much as just another person who's caught up in a helpless situation. I love Luki so much, and I think she's one of the most well-written children in fiction that I've come across in a very long time. And in particular, the development of her relationship, both with Nani and Edward, is so beautiful and touching in ways that are only possible because everyone in the situation feels real. 
Now let's talk about the characters of Nani and Edward. As I said earlier, like with Jess and Dan, part of what draws Nani and Edward together is the misogyny that Nani faces from the other male characters. But I feel like the Postmistress of Paris's commentary on the issue is just so much more deep and effective than it ever gets in The Paris Orphan. In The Paris Orphan, Dan is just a good guy. He's just the ultimate anti-misogynist for no other reason than that is the way he is. Well, and also he is the ideal love interest, so how could he not be a good guy? How could he be evil? Okay, <laughs> I, I'm dumb being sarcastic. But in The Postmistress of Paris, there is actual complexity and nuance given to this very important issue of how men and women should interact in a patriarchal society. Because the answer can't just be, don't be misogynistic. That's an incredibly uninformed and unhelpful way of viewing the situation. It's like telling a depressed person to just be happier. That's not helping anyone. That's thanks I'm cured territory. The Postmistress of Paris does a really great job of showing how even though Edward isn't misogynistic, he definitely needs to develop his mindset towards women, which he does over the course of the book. And what I love in particular about his character development is how much Edward's view of women is tied into his profession as a surrealist artist. The surrealists are a huge part of this book. They're a large majority of the people that Nani befriends and tries to help. And I think that this book's commentary on the way that men in art in general, but also in particular men in the surrealist movement, spoke about and treated women is very insightful and well done. Here's an excerpt from the beginning of the book that really highlights what I'm trying to articulate here. You avoid my question, Nani said. Why are the women naked and dismembered while the men are full-bodied and fully clothed? But of course the answer, Edward answered before Andre could, is that we are men. Even Andre laughed, but Nani only said pfft in that way that French women did. She was American and not, just as he was German and not. You are thinking this is not an answer that we are men, Edward said, but it is merely not the answer you wish to hear. Much like Freud, we're interested in exploring without moral judgment, obsession, anxiety, even fetish. She shifted uncomfortably, discomfort being what he'd meant to provoke, being a proper surrealist himself. Do you see what I mean there about how Edward is trying to engage with what Nani is saying, her criticism of the art that these men are creating? And on some level, he understands what she means. But on another level, there's this part of him that doesn't understand, right? That's willfully trying to look away from the fact that maybe his art is a little misogynistic. Maybe there is something to what she's saying, but he's trying to frame it as we're being objective, right? And then throughout the course of the story, obviously this this idea, well, this early exchange is developed in more detail, but do you see what I'm trying to say? There is very much from the beginning this push and pull between Nani and the ideas and the art of the surrealist men around her. What I love in particular is the exploration of these ideas of art and womanhood and misogyny that Nani and Edward explore together in their conversations throughout the book. And what makes Edward different from all of the other men is that he's actually willing to examine his own biases, to grapple with his preconceptions, and to grow past them. 
because the other men in this book who are more or less misogynistic are not necessarily bad people. For example, Varian Fry, who is the American journalist heading the operation to get the refugees out of occupied France, is undoubtedly a brave man and I would say a good one. And what I mean by good is that his actions produce a net positive in the grand scheme of fighting back against the Nazis. But he is also casually misogynistic and Nani doesn't always find it easy to work with him because he's not willing to critically engage with his biases to see just how much he's dehumanizing the women who are doing so much to help his cause. And I think this excerpt from the book really shows just how much Edward is committed to truth and to art, and how that leads him to overcome his biases. The camera did record that which we would never recognize in our hearts, and yet can see in the faces and postures of others. And wasn't that how we started to heal the world? by digging through our own faults to find the best in ourselves. He told Nani that he couldn't turn the camera on the watchers now. He needed to turn it on himself. But in that first self-portrait a decade ago, he'd turned the camera to the watchers, only to see his own face staring back at him. Art was a hammer, after all. One to shatter his own hard shell his own untrue version of himself. Because Edward is able to shatter his own conception of himself, because he's willing to critically examine his ideals and thoughts, because he's willing to rebuild himself, because of that, that is what makes him a compelling character and a perfect foil for Nani. I think what people often forget about romances is that the characters have to fit. They have to mesh. And the really unfortunate truth is that so many romances take a shortcut. They just go, well, here are two attractive people who are nice enough, and that must mean that they're totally compatible. Looking at you, the Parasorphan, Jess and Dan are hot and good people, and that totally means they're in love, right? Yeah, no, forgive me if I'm not completely convinced. But in The Postmistress of Paris, you can actually articulate why these characters, Edward and Nani, fit together, why they're such a good match. They're both deeply committed to this idea of moral truth, that there exists not only a right thing to do, but also a shared ethical principle for why it's right. Where they disagree is in how exactly they should be striving for this moral truth. Nani is very much a straightforward person, a person who doesn't really struggle with knowing what she should or shouldn't do. She sees a destination and does whatever she needs to do to get there. By the way, I think that that's part of what makes her so American, if that makes sense. Like, that just strikes me as like a very American way of thinking. And so I think it's really perfect that she's like an American and that's reflected in her worldview and her mindset. Edward, on the other hand, very much struggles with the ethics of his particular way of resistance, of fighting back, which is through the art that he creates. He's best known for capturing small moments of defiance against Hitler and the Nazis, but he hasn't been able to create art in a long time because he's struggling to come to terms with this idea that evil thrives even more when you put a spotlight on it. And that his art, even though it's trying to point out the evils of Hitler and his regime, is still giving Hitler the attention that he needs to reach the people who are willing to listen to his message and follow him. And this is not touched on in the book, I don't believe, but it is important to remember that when you portray Nazis as untouchable monsters 
real life villains who are the counterparts of superheroes in superhero movies, it can cause people to just give up because they don't see the point in fighting back. It's kind of the way that in true crime, sometimes people tend to overestimate how powerful and evil serial killers are because they're not monsters per se. They're just people, and that's what makes their actions monstrous. Does that make sense? Anyway, so this excerpt from the book is a portion of one of the conversations that Edward and Nani have about this issue, about his qualms when it comes to spreading awareness of the evils of Nazism through art. He'd believed his own proud anger set him above others. It was something he realized only after Elsa was murdered, an unconscious assumption on which his work was based. He said to Nani, This is what makes a photograph compelling or shocking or moving. We all imagine ourselves innocent, aghast at cruelty, empathetic, human. We don't imagine that in simply watching, we provide an audience. We cheered or jeered, or perhaps we only stared. He wasn't sure it mattered. In being there to watch, we encouraged. This was what he photographed, the genteel society from which violence seeped up. He said, We don't imagine our own slovenly posture, our lurking eyes, our glee as we witness shame. The camera records that which we would never recognize in our own hearts, and yet, when we see it in the faces and postures of others, we see it too in ourselves. But there's nothing slovenly or lurking in her. Oh, her, by the way. So they're discussing this photo that Edward took of this woman, this caped woman, this woman wearing a cape. So essentially, this was a photograph that he took when he was still living in Germany. He saw this woman who was leaving the opera house, hence why she's wearing the cape. And there were these Nazis who were doing like a protest outside, I believe. And she walked away from the scene. And he was like fascinated by the way that her anger and her emotions were reflected in her posture and the way that she was walking. So he took some photos of that. And now he's developing those photos, but he's doctoring them to create art. They're not just straightforward photos. So that is, that is the her in question. But there's nothing slovenly or lurking in her. We don't see that our own proud anger allows us to feel superior. Do you feel yourself superior, Edward? His name warm in her voice. Do you not, Nani? Think you superior? The slightest teasing smile on her lips. Might we not learn even more from looking at photographs of ourselves? We never believe the camera has truly captured us unless we appear beautiful. We think photographs showing our ugliness are distortions, bad angles, bad moments, not who we are. By the way, this line in and of itself is so true. Haven't you ever like taken a photo of yourself like with your phone, like a selfie and been like, is that what I look like? Like, that's not what I look like. And then, you know, you try all the different angles and lighting to make yourself look good. Gosh, that, that line really hit home. Back to the excerpt. He looked to the kitchen sink and the copper pans, the jug they used to collect milk from Madame Lavèche, who is the cow, by the way. Beauty. It isn't interesting to me, he said. It's the face we present to the world. I wish to capture what we hide, that which brings us shame. And now, Nani asked gently, there is so much violence and shame, slouching and lurking, so much hiding, saying we're one thing while doing another. Why can you not photograph now? I'm going to skip a little forward in the conversation because there's um some conversation here that's a little like misdirection. He doesn't really answer her question and they talk a little bit about like their situation, but that's not what we're interested in. 
I find, he said, that if I'm to turn the camera to the watchers now, I must turn it to myself. I don't know how I ever imagined I was anything else. But in photographing, no. This is what I told myself for so many years, that I'm different because I have a camera. I turn it to show the watchers that, in giving evil an audience, they encourage violence. But in doing so, I too give evil the audience it craves. I, I now think this is what people fear more than anything. Not that they won't be revealed at all. That they will be nothing. Nani peered down into the water again, to this goddess who was once simply a woman in an opera cape. I have to see inside myself first, Edward said. I have to rid myself of this need to be seen. You don't do that by refusing to take photographs. You don't even do that by refusing to publish them. There is no way out if nobody shows the truth. And maybe it's in knowing that we're watched that we behave our best. Maybe we need to be watched more rather than less. He'd followed the caped woman because he wanted to be like her, to refuse evil on audience. And yet, Nani was right too. Evil unchecked by the world's response might be even more ruinous. Do you see this heartfelt back and forth that Nani and Ed Edward are able to have because of their opposing viewpoints and the ways in which they help to bring out the best in each other? It's such a beautiful romance. And what makes it so effective is the care with which these characters are crafted and fleshed out and developed. Overall, this is such a beautiful book. Such a gorgeous historical fiction book. And it made me so sad that I cried several times while reading it. It gets really, really heavy in some places, as you would probably expect. But I'm also so glad that I read it because it truly enriched my life so much. And there aren't that many books that I can say that about. Like I said earlier, it's my favorite out of all of the historical fiction books that I've read so far this year. And I'm pretty sure that it will end up being one of my favorite books of 2023. Alright, let's wrap this mini-series up. We went over three books in this World War II Paris book series, which were The Paris Architect, The Paris Orphan, and The Postmistress of Paris. Let's have a little award ceremony to wrap this up. Most accurate title award goes to The Paris Architect. Congratulations for being the only book that was really about World War II Paris. Round of applause to the Paris Architect. Most compelling true story award is a tie between the Paris Orphan and the Postmistress of Paris. I found both of these true stories to be fascinating, and I am so glad that I know about both of these stories now. Thank you to these books for educating me about these corners of history that I hadn't heard about before. Round of applause to the Paris Orphan and the Postmistress of Paris. Most compelling romance award goes to the Postmistress of Paris. Thank you for creating these beautiful characters and for giving us this heart, heartfelt, heartbreaking romance. Round of applause to the Postmistress of Paris. Most Ridiculous Romance Award goes to the Paris Architect. I, I know it's kind of an anti-award, but I do want to recognize it for being the only romance to make me laugh out loud this year, like unintentionally, not in a rom-com way. So congrats to the Paris Architect. Round of applause to the Paris Architect. And then book with my favorite characters is that award goes to the Postmistress of Paris. Round of applause to the Postmistress of Paris for creating such beautiful characters. And then finally, my favorite book out of all three, you guessed it, 
It's the Postmistress of Paris. Round of applause to this book. I did intentionally save the best for last, and I would really, really, really encourage everyone to go read this book. It is so beautiful and moving, and it's really everything you could want out of a historical fiction book. All right. That will be everything for this week, and that wraps up our World War II Paris Books mini series. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thanks so much for joining me in this episode and throughout this mini series. It's been quite a journey, and I'll be back next week at 2AM, ready to embark on our next reading adventure together. Until then, have a great week and happy book travels!